Grace and peace to you all from the Lord Jesus Christ. It is good to be with you this evening. Our sermon text for the evening will come from the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. If you are willing and able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word as we listen to this letter from Jesus to his church in Philadelphia. The word of God reads... And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power and you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading, the hearing, and the preaching of his word. And all the church says, you may be seated. We continue our series today on the seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor, which are found in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And we have titled this sermon, One Holy, Chaotic, and Apathetic Church. And that is a twist on the phrase from the Nicene Creed, which says, One Holy, Catholic, and Apostolic Church. The reason we had this twist on the phrase found in that creed is because when you read these seven letters, you discover that this is the church of Jesus Christ. It is one church. It is a universal church. It is rooted and grounded in the teachings of the apostles and prophets. But it is a church that is often racked with problems a church that can be chaotic at times and a church that can be apathetic at times. But as I've tried to remind you week after week, it is the church of Jesus Christ. This is the church He loves, the church which He purchased with His blood. And so as troublesome and as difficult as some of these congregations were in Asia Minor, know that these are the churches of Jesus Christ. And know that our church is not very different from many of the churches that we find here. We face the same struggles, the same weaknesses, the same temptations, the same difficulties in our world that they faced in their world. We might even say that we have it easier than they do in some ways because none of us were assaulted or... um, 
or uh, tempted to stay away from worship because we were under threat of attack on our way over this evening. In some ways we have it easier, in some ways harder than they did. The point I want you to see is that whether you were in Ephesus or Philadelphia, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Laodicea, or Mesquite, you're a part of the church of Jesus Christ, the people that He loves, and you were purchased with His blood. Jesus comes to the churches as the Good Shepherd. And he speaks to the churches as a good shepherd. And as we've seen each week, he first comes to the church and calls the church to look at him and to consider their situation in light of who he is. In fact, he looks at the churches in light of who he is. And then he commends the churches for the good things that they are doing. He commends them for what is right and good in their communities. And then he will critique and often condemn things that are wrong about those communities, calling those churches to repentance, counseling them to turn and make necessary changes. And he always ends the letters by comforting his churches, reminding them of the promises held out to them in the gospel. And the letter we see tonight is no different than that. The letter tonight that we heard is a letter that was written to the church in Philadelphia, a church that was in a good place, you might say. The city of brotherly love. The church in Philadelphia. The word Philadelphia means different things to different people. If you think about it, if you hear the word Philadelphia, various things might come across your mind. You might think, oh, Philadelphia, that's the place where Westminster Theological Seminary is based. Or you might think Philadelphia is the home of the hated Philadelphia Eagles or delicious cheesesteak or the heroic Rocky Balboa. To many others, Philadelphia is the headquarters of the American Revolution. It is the place where the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States were written and signed. It is the place where the Liberty Bell hangs, cracked though she is, reminding us of the frailty of our Republic. But to everyone, everywhere, Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. The church at Philadelphia was a congregation of the people of Christ in the city of brotherly love. And more importantly than that, they were a, a living witness of the love of Christ in the world, even to that city. Because the love that they were to demonstrate was deeper than the love between brothers. It was even deeper than the love between friends. They were to demonstrate to one another and to their community the love of God which is in Jesus Christ. And so they're demonstrating to the world around them what the love of God looks like. And they're doing this with all of their might, with all of their power, such as it was. And you'll see in just a moment that it wasn't much, but it was enough. The first thing we see in Revelation 3, verse 7, is Jesus considers the church at Philadelphia in light of who he is. He describes himself as the Holy One, the True One, the One who holds the keys of David. And some of these images might be lost on us because 
we're, per, we're probably not as well versed in the Old Testament as we ought to be. But Jesus is appealing to images that come from the Old Testament where the people of God knew that these are descriptors of who God is. He is the Holy One. He is the True One. And what is this about the keys of David? The phrase Holy One is used some 29 times in the book of Isaiah alone. In the prophets and the poets of the Old Testament, God is referred to as the Holy One. But I just want to give you a couple of examples from the book of Isaiah. Throughout the Old Testament, God reveals Himself as the Creator and the Redeemer and the Lord. But in Isaiah, He is known as the Holy One of Israel, the Redeemer. One example of this is found in Isaiah 43, 1-3, where... God says, Now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And so God acknowledges that often in life, His people must pass through very difficult circumstances or situations. And he assures his people that he will be with them. This particular prophecy was made in reference to the fact that God's people were about to go from their land into exile. And God says, when you go into exile and you cross all of those rivers into Babylon, I will be with you. And when you get to Babylon and they try to burn you in the fires, which they did, I will be with you. And God was. He is the Holy One of Israel. He's also described here as the one who has the keys of David. The keys of David. This refers to Jesus as the true and better king. He is the man after God's own heart. We heard in our scripture reading before the sermon from the Old Testament, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. When Jesus reveals himself to the church in Philadelphia as the one who has the keys of David, he is telling the church at Philadelphia that he is in fact the one true king. He is, in fact, the one who will rule over Israel and rule over the nations. That He is the one who has the power to let people in and to let people out. He is describing Himself as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the true and better David. All of this comes from Isaiah the prophet. 
In Isaiah 6, there is a neat, interesting way of getting from Isaiah back to Revelation. Let me show you how. Isaiah and John spoke of Jesus and they reveal images of Jesus to us and in Isaiah 6 it's no different as we move back from Isaiah to Revelation hear this image this vision from Isaiah 6 Isaiah the prophet says that in the year that King Isaiah died I saw the one true king I saw the Lord high and exalted seated on a throne and the train of his robe filled the temple he also saw a bunch of fiery burning creatures flying around and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. What do we have here? We have these images of Jesus, the Holy One, the True One, the One with the keys of David, all coming together. The Holy One has the power of the keys. He opens and shuts the door of His temple by the power of his majestic glory. He opens and shuts the door to heaven by the power of his sovereign grace, and no one can undo what he does. The Holy One and the true King now draws near to speak to his church. So I tell you all of that from Isaiah so you can have a full-orbed vision of who Jesus is. And when he says that he is the Holy One and the True One and the true and better David, I want you to know that he is coming to speak to the church at Philadelphia as the King and the Lord of his people. So notice how he speaks to the church in verses 8 to 10. In Revelation 3, 8 to 10, Jesus commends the church. He has high praise for this congregation of his people. He knows their works. He knows that they have kept his word and they have not denied his name. And to put, put it positively, it means that they have not cast aside his word and they have continued to confess his name before men. And for all who confess the name of Jesus before men, Jesus assures them that he will confess their name before God. But he mentions something here interesting. This ties back to something we heard from Isaiah. He says that he has set before the church in Philadelphia an open door which no one can shut. If you read the epistles in the New Testament, you'll see this phrase pop up again and again, an open door. And it's often a reference to the mission of the church of Jesus Christ on the earth. An open door so that the church can go out, messengers can go out and preach the gospel to the nations. And many commentators will say that that's what is in mind here in Revelation 3, that Jesus has set before the church an open door so they can go on mission to the nations. But I think the context tells us something different. The, con the context tells us about an open door that leads not to mission, but to worship, specifically to heavenly worship. In Revelation chapter 1, we saw this many weeks ago, but in Revelation chapter 1, the Apostle John saw a door in the sky. 
He was caught up in the Lord, caught up in the Spirit on the Lord's day and carried through that open door into the universe next door. A door is a passageway that connects one space to another. C.S. Lewis picked up on this image of a door and used it throughout his series, the, throughout the Narnia series. And so in several of the stories, you will find a door placed, a door which is a portal, which Aslan used to establish a connection between worlds, to transport people from one world to another. In the voyage of the Dawn Treader, Aslan opens a door in the sky. I think C.S. Lewis got his inspiration from the revelation of Jesus Christ in chapter 4. Where John saw that door in the sky, a door open in heaven. And it's not an ordinary door here. It is an extraordinary door. Remember in our series on the Gospel of John, we saw that before Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, he claimed to be the door by which if anyone enters, he shall be saved. He also claimed to be the way to the Father and that apart from Christ, no one may go to the Father. And so here we see in the letter to the Philadelphia church that a door is open to the church, a door in the sky. It is a door that is symbolic of the person and work of Jesus Christ, the good shepherd of the sheep who is calling the church in Philadelphia home. Calling them home. A door is open for you which no one can shut. And why can't they shut it? Because it's been opened by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He has the keys of the kingdom. Jesus also commends this church because in spite of their little power, They've been able to keep his word and not deny his name. I wish you could see this in Greek. You'll have to trust me on this. I'm no scholar, but I did pick up on this word and reflect on it a little bit this week. And it's interesting to see that this word is, is, it means little power. You have little power. And it's not just little power. It's, it's actually worse than that. It means you have like little bitty power. Teensy tiny power. Micro power. Very micro power. The least power of all those who have power. That's what the church in Philadelphia had. Jesus knew it. I know you have teensy tiny micro power. And yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. How were they able to do that? They were able to do it by the power of Christ and not their own. Earlier in the book of Revelation, Jesus is revealed. This is in chapter 1, verse 8. He is revealed as the Pantocrator, which is a fancy way to say he is the all-powerful one. And so weak as they are, the church at Philly is able to hang on to Jesus and confess his name because Jesus has the power to hang on to them and not deny their name. Contrary to church growth gurus, our safety and security never ever depends on the power and influence of the church in the culture. It only always depends on the influence and power of Jesus Christ in the church. 
And so we might say of ourselves, oh, we relate to the church in Philadelphia. We have little bitty power. We have no influence. We're microscopic in our influence and strength. To which Jesus would say, so what? Jesus Christ has all power in heaven and on earth. And you can endure all things in Christ, not by your power, but by His power. And by the way, if I could speak candidly for a moment about our congregation, I would suggest to you that that is the only reason that we are still alive and kicking today here in Skeetside. We are weak but Jesus is strong. His power is made perfect in our weaknesses. As weak as this congregation of his people were, they had to put up with a lot of trouble. And you see here that in addition to their own weakness, the inherent weakness of the congregation, they have outside problems to deal with. There is this group of people that Jesus describes as the synagogue of Satan. Not a very charitable way to put it, is it? As he describes opponents of the Christian faith, more specifically as he describes antichrists who were at work in the community of Philadelphia. A synagogue of Satan, he calls them. These were Jewish people who were still meeting in the synagogue, but they had decided against Jesus. They had rejected him as the Messiah. They were movers and shakers in the community. They were the ones who considered themselves to be the gatekeepers of the kingdom of God. And so they could look at Jews who had believed in Christ and trusted in Christ and obeyed Christ as now being outsiders. They could look at Gentiles who had done the same as outsiders. And Jesus says, I know what they're up to. They claim to be the covenant people of God, but they are lying. They are not telling the truth about the matter. They are a synagogue of Satan, a synagogue of those who speak against you, accuse you, who try to bring you down. Notice the difference here that the church of Jesus Christ is a congregation of those who are called out of the world to Christ himself. But what is a synagogue? A synagogue is a gathering of people. They gather together apart from Christ. And so that's the conflict of the, of the day, the situation in Philadelphia. These people claim to be the called and chosen ones. They have a long history. They identify nationally and ethnically with the people of Israel. And so they think based on that, they are the people of God. But Jesus says, no, 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 you're not. The church of Jesus Christ is made up of Jews and Gentiles who are purchased with the blood of Christ. And they come from every tribe and nation and language and people. And they are called out of the world and gathered around the throne of grace in the name of Jesus. Those are the called and chosen ones. And so Jesus reminds his church of their identity and says, yeah, you're dealing with some hard things right now and these people are trying to shut the kingdom in your faces. But the time is coming when they are going to come and bow down before you. And here's what they're going to know. The truth of the matter. Jesus says they're going to bow before you and then they will know that Jesus loves you. Isn't that remarkable? 
of all the things he could have said to them, your enemies will come and bow before you and they will know the truth. And what is the truth? That you were smarter than they were? That you were better? That you had more influence and power? No. They're going to know the truth. And the truth is that Jesus loves you. And that's going to hurt them in ways that they can't even imagine. In the Old Testament, God had told His covenant people, the Jews, that in the future, Gentiles would come and bow down before them. Their enemies would come and bow down before them. And now Jesus takes that same language and He tells His covenant people, the church, that those Jews, those who have rejected Christ, will come and bow down before them so that they can learn that Jesus loves the church. Now, part of the reward for this church being so faithful to Jesus is that when this time comes of testing, Jesus says, you're going to be spared the test. Trouble is coming on the whole world. It's coming upon all earth dwellers. It's the hour of crisis. It's the time of judgment in which God will sort out who is faithful and who is nominal who is a cross-bearer and who is simply a couch potato? Who is authentic and who is counterfeit? A trial is coming upon the world. And Jesus says to this congregation of people, you don't have to worry about that. You're going to be spared that difficulty. We heard it a few moments ago that Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead. And that's what this trial is about. The rest of the book of Revelation describes the various kinds of trials and tribulations that come from the throne of God upon the world. And you see all kinds of disasters and difficulties. And yet Jesus shows mercy to this congregation of His people in Philly and says, you're going to be spared. You're going to be spared. This is a test, but it's only a test, and you're going to be spared from that. Now it's usually at this point in the letter and usually at this point in the sermon in which we, we turn our attention to critique and condemn different aspects of the life of the church. And yet you notice in this letter that there is no condemnation. Jesus doesn't have a bad thing to say about this congregation of his people. This stands in sharp contrast to last week at the church in Sardis when Jesus didn't have anything good to say to the church in Sardis. But here he has nothing bad to say to the church at Philadelphia. What I want you to hear about this, what I want you to know about this, uh, this truth is that contrary to popular opinion, you see here that Jesus is not a nitpicking fault finder. That's not his mission. That's not how he relates to the church. He's not a nitpicking fault finder. As Scripture says, love covers a multitude of sins. Jesus loves this church in the city of brotherly love. And it's not that he's winking at their sin. It's not that he doesn't care about any weaknesses or failings they might have. One thing is clear, whatever their problems, whatever their deficiencies might have been, Jesus did not consider them worth mentioning. And that's something to consider, isn't it? He still has counsel for the church, even though there's no critique or condemnation. He still has counsel for the church. And you find this in verse 11. Notice he says, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. This counsel is gift-wrapped in a promise. 
It's not just good advice, take it or leave it. This is pastoral counsel at its best. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. For the church at Philadelphia, Jesus' coming is not a threat. It is a promise. When Jesus says, I am coming soon, the church at Philadelphia does not hear him say, I'm coming to get you. What they hear him say is, I'm coming for you. I'm coming on your behalf. I'm coming to rescue you. That's what they hear. He is coming soon to render aid and to rescue his people from the flesh, from the world, from the devil. He is coming to judge the living and the dead. And he will judge with justice and truth. He will do what is right and good. He will discern between those who are faithful and unfaithful, between those who are righteous and wicked. His justice will bring forth judgment, and he will do what is right and good. His counsel to the church is to hold fast to what you have. And if you think about the, how this stands in sharp contrast to what he said earlier, remember when he said, I know that you have little power. And now he tells them, hold fast to what you have. We might be tempted to think that all he means is, hold on to the little bit of power you have left and don't let that power go. But it's so much more than that, isn't it? Hold on to what you have. What does a church like the church in Philadelphia have? What does that congregation have that they need to hold on to? They have Christ. They have the gospel. They have one another. That's what they have. They have the promises of God. They have the revelation of Jesus, that He is King of kings and Lord of lords. They have a relationship with Him. They're in covenant union with Him. This is what you have. This is what you have. And I mean you, speaking to you, this is what you have. The same things. He doesn't say, hold on to the resources, the material resources you have. Don't spend them unwisely. Hold on to them. He doesn't say, hold on to your influence in community. Hold on to the power you have in politics. Hold on to your position in your city. No. Hold on to Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace. Hold on to one another as if your lives depended on it. Because they do. And the things he's calling us to hang on to are things that are blessings given us in the gospel. Why would we hold on to these things? Well, he says hold on to them so that no one may seize your crown. And you might think, well, why do we have a crown? Why does the church in Philadelphia already have a crown when they haven't gone to meet the Lord yet? Well, that's a Bible Belt way of thinking of things, isn't it? They have met the Lord. And He's already given them life and victory. His victory is their victory. His conquest over sin and death is their conquest over sin and death. They are more than conquerors through Him who conquered sin and death on their behalf. Hold on to the gospel and don't let anyone take your crown away. Don't let anyone strip you of your symbol of victory or take away your title or 
remove your prize or depose you from your throne. Hang on to what you have in Christ. And then we finally come to this last section. Jesus comforts his church. And this is actually my favorite part of all of these letters. When Jesus speaks to us as a shepherd, and we are his sheep, and he gives us this comforting message at the end of these letters. In verses 12 and 13, Jesus speaks to these people as if they were conquerors already, but encourages them to continue conquering. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. The word conquer in, in the Greek language is nikao, and we get uh, our word Nike from that. So those of you who wear Nikes and like that know that it just has something to do with victory, conquer, conquering. It means to overcome or to win. So the one who overcomes, the one who conquers, wins. We say to the victor go the spoils, right? This is what Jesus is saying. One commentator says, even though their adversaries, the synagogue of Satan, seeks to exclude them from the kingdom by shutting the door in their faces, Christ has opened up the way into the presence of God for this church at Philadelphia. And I want you to notice what Jesus promises to do for those who overcome the world by faith. Listen to what he says. I will make him a permanent fixture in the house of my God. He will never go out. If any of you have any doubts or lack of assurance or concern about salvation, listen to what Jesus says here. The one who overcomes will have the assurance of salvation, will have eternal security in Christ. How do we know that? Because Jesus will make him a permanent fixture in his house. He will never go out. This will be the work of Jesus Christ alone. He will also write on him, I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, and my own new name. So if we take together what the scriptures say, the sum of the scriptures about these names, this is what we might come up with. That these victorious pillars in the temple of God will bear these inscriptions upon them. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that's the name of God. The new Jerusalem, that's the name of God's city. Faithful and true, the word of God, King of kings and Lord of lords, that is Jesus' own new name. Why will these pillars in the temple of God bear these inscriptions? And the answer is because their identity will be found in Jesus Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. They will forever be identified as the people of God. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. So for those of you who wonder week after week, how can we overcome? How can we conquer? What must we do to win? And the answer is simply this. Turn and trust in Jesus Christ. As the Word of God says, He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.
Let us pray together. O triune God, we draw near to you. And we cry out to you in our time of need that you may give us your grace, that we may trust and obey your word, that we may lean on Christ in the midst of our weakness and frailty. We pray that we will rely on him and not in our own strength. And we ask you, O oh God, to make perfect your power even in our weakness that yours may be all the glory and all the praise and all the honor. We pray, O oh God, that as we struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, that we will rely on your power and not our own, for we are weak. And we feel the crushing weight of our own sins and the crushing weight of the pressures of the world upon us. And were we left to our own devices, we would collapse. We would be crushed under this weight. And yet your word promises that though you know how weak we are, you remind us of how powerful and majestic you are. We thank you, O oh God, for the vision of Jesus Christ given to us in the word. In the book of the Revelation in the prophets, in the Psalms, in the law, the Gospels, the epistles, everywhere we look, we see the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ. I pray you lift our eyes away from our distractions, away from the things that drag us down and away from Him, and help us to remember that Jesus Christ is the Holy One who abides with us as we pass through the waters, endures with us through the flames, who shields us and sustains us in the midst of these crises. I pray you lift our eyes even farther up that we may see a door in the sky and know that the door is Christ, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you will breathe new life into us and lift us up out of the muck and mire of this world. Lift us up beyond the rocky exile of our experience and help us to see the glory and the majesty of Christ beyond this world. Give us a glimpse of the new heavens and new earth. Give us a glimpse of the true and better Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love where Jesus Christ dwells with his brethren and leads them in worship and comforts them in their affliction and corrects them in their error. We thank you, O oh God, for the promises extended to us in the gospel and our prayer in response is that we may be watchful we may stand firm in the faith and act like men and be strong and that all that we do will be done in love for the glory of God and the good of His church, we pray. Amen.